immigration, free trade, and international cooperation enable us to pursue prosperity and deal with the unique challenges of the 21st century? Or do they undermine a nation's culture and capacity for self-determination? Increasingly, it seems, conservatives seem to favor the latter argument. But my guest today, Dalibor Rohak, instead argues that supporting the post-war international order is both consistent with conservative intellectual history and the only prudent course going forward. Delabor is a resident scholar here at AI, where he studies European political and economic trends. His new book is In Defense of Globalism. Delabor, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. What's wrong with America first? Um, seems pretty seems pretty straightforward. <laughs> hey, man, I mean, I'm not going to have France first. I'm not going to have uh, Europe first. What's wrong with America first just as a general proposition? I suppose there's nothing wrong with it as a general proposition. Uh, one question is obviously how... U.S. interest can be advanced in the world, and uh, especially in a world that's globalized, that's interconnected, in which uh, business activity is not confined to territories of particular nation states, but spread out and decentralized. Uh, and in that world, uh, I don't think a policy that's organized around nationalism and protectionism and, uh, and, and efforts at dismantling traditional alliances that the U.S. has relied on will bring about results that are aligned with with U.S. interests. But all countries sort of in practice try to put their uh, interests first, right? Have other countries been behaving in a way where they put their interests first in a way we have not? Well, I think there was a a discontinuity in in sort of U.S. foreign policy outlook with the end of the Second World War, in which uh, a sort of bipartisan consensus emerged in Washington uh, about the nature of of these long-term U.S. interests. And, and and so, so not everything that seems immediately in the material U.S. interest is is is, is also aligned with the sort of enlightened interest. So rather than having U.S. troops come to, to Europe, you know, to, to its rescue twice mm-hmm. in, in in these horrific world wars, uh, Americans decided to create a system of international collective security that would prevent these conflicts from from emerging in the first place. And that system, by and large, has been incredibly successful and went hand-in-hand with institutions that underpinned economic openness, that promoted democracy, um, that overall made the world a much better place. And in the meantime, I think they were, by and large, good for for America's interests. I mean, they made the U.S. the world's uncontested leader, superpower, Mm -hmm. Uh, placed it in a position in which uh, its leverage can be exercised in every corner of the world in a way that a world guided by sort of America first mentality would, would, would not have produced the same same outcomes. So it seems to me that there are people who think that a, a globalist outlook has served America well, but no longer that people who believe in globalism, that they're, they're sort of stuck in the past, they refuse to acknowledge the changes, the changes where there's no Soviet Union, the changes where the, the United States faces new economic competitors, we have big trade deficits. So it's kind of a backward-looking belief. And then there are people, I think, believe that maybe it really wasn't such a success, that all it got us really was a bunch of hollowed-out communities in the Rust Belt. It got us the Iraq War, uh, all the other countries did very well. I think the president has said that, you know, meanwhile, we were, you know, we've been blood dry. So either it's backward looking and you're refusing to acknowledge a brand new circumstance, which requires a brand new point of view, 
or you're just overstating how valuable it was uh, to begin with. So just that you just made the case that it's been it's been good for America. But what about those criticisms that it really hasn't been good for America? That, that we spent it, it got us into a, at least more recently a, a a a very costly war, and and we've ended up for at least thirty years a declining manufacturing base where other countries have built up their capabilities and ours have declined. So I guess one could quibble about the sort of particular propositions that that you sort of your your question encapsulated. Uh, I think I think by and large the idea that that America today is worse off because of the U.S. global leadership role. I think that certainly is the president's position. It seems to me is that um, we are worse off. Well, I'm not sure if the sort of rules of global trade were written by the Chinese, if if, if WTO and the Bretton Woods system didn't exist, or if if, if Europe uh, was trapped in sort of power competition between 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 large countries, mm-hmm. like like it were in the past. I don't think it would be conducive to. You know, better prospects for U.S. workers or or or, or American industry. So, so, so not convinced by that line of thought. Uh, the, the line of thought that might be more compelling is is the one which consists of inquiring whether particular aspects of this system uh, need updating. I mean, that's and, that's and, a Steve Bannon argument. I've heard Steve I, I, Bannon I, I, talk. I think, and he think, said that great. You know, uh, the world was in shambles after World War II. We wanted those other countries to catch up. We didn't want those countries to have terrible economies and they all become communist countries. We wanted them to become, you know, liberal, yep. pro-American democracies. That's great. Well, guess what? They caught up. And maybe in some cases, maybe they've even surpassed us. Uh, so now we need to start thinking about ourselves. And I think the president has put it this way frequently, like we have re- we rebuilt and sometimes they'll say we rebuilt China. Sometimes they'll say we rebuilt this country. Yeah. But we rebuilt these countries. Maybe it's time we rebuilt ourselves. Well, the two are not mutually exclusive, right? You can have good domestic policies without sort of jeopardizing your your international uh, position. Uh, but I would say that uh, the world has certainly changed. And many of these institutions have not adapted to those changing circumstances. And there needs to be a conversation both within the context of transatlantic relations with Europe about how that alliance should look like, um, whether the U.S. should be the sole guarantor of of Europe's security, uh, whether the the core of the relationship should not be oriented towards the new challenges that have to do with the rise of China rather than um, European security uh, narrowly understood. And there also has to be, I think, a broader conversation about uh, multilateral institutions right like sort of you know has the like un system bank us IMF, well. wto uh is that what you mean right so 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 those various institutions were created with certain mandates in the past uh in many cases they have outlived their original mandates the imf was created to uh essentially manage the system of fixed exchange rates after the second world war uh that system of fixed exchange rates doesn't exist uh for you know, quite a few, quite a few decades now. So, so in the meantime, some of these institutions have sort of reinvented their mandates anew. Uh, some have drifted into irrelevance, uh, and so so this idea that we should probably look at them more closely and prune some of these aspects of of this international architecture uh, that are no longer fit for purpose. I think that that's not an offensive idea. Uh, but I don't think that justifies the wholesale cynicism about the system, which really is a radical departure from what existed in the past. Uh, and, and, and overall, it's something that served the U.S. and the world well. The book is called In Defense of Globalism. Mm-hmm. 
So what do you believe that you think a na- somebody who would call himself a nationalist does not? Like, what, is you, how, what are the key, you think, the key differences in your worldview? And now maybe, now we, if you want to use the president, President Trump as an example of nationalism, fine. But if there's a, if there's a more sophisticated, yeah, nuanced yeah. version of that. Uh, that yeah, view, so, so, so yeah. there are obviously various ways in which one can be a nationalist. Uh, and some of them are perhaps more compelling intellectually than than others. But but the book has has a twofold aim. The first one is to push against the idea that nationalism in its various forms is an integral part of conservative or centre-right thought. Uh, It is to push against the idea that this crude, narrowly understood realism is the only way to think about global and international affairs from a centroid perspective, uh, which really is a, is a position that has been gaining traction and influence in, in centroid circles, especially in the English-speaking world, particularly in America. Uh, and the second goal of the book is to point out that many of these international institutions and organizations and, and this multilateral architecture that we can call globalism, if you will, uh, is not some sort of top-down imposition created with the aim of dismantling or replacing the nation-state, but rather that it is a almost product of a bottom-up evolution aimed at fixing particular policy challenges that, that, that have emerged. And, uh, and I think that has sort of implications about how we should think about these systems, because there is, I think, an obsession with national sovereignty on the political right, which has become rather unhealthy as of late. Um, and which leads people to sort of ideologically driven knee-jerk refusal to even engage with with with, with policy challenges that, that 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 arise at the international level, whether it's climate change or or various questions of sustaining you know, trade openness, uh, financial uh, stability, and and others. So, how do you think? How do you think about sovereignty? versus someone who might call themselves a nationalist? How do they think about sovereignty? Because, you know, because you're not arguing uh, for the dissolution of the nation state. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you believe, so you believe some degree in sovereignty. So how, wh- how do you think about it versus how do you perceive a nationalist thinks about it? So, so sovereignty is a, is a bit of a tricky word so, because it, it carries slightly different meanings for different people. Uh, one understanding of sovereignty is that of, of, of in, in the sort of traditional Westphalian sense, that you have states uh, that see each other as equals. In, uh, it's, 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 it's sovereignty is an international norm, the way states treat each other. Um, and, and clearly international cooperation has not eroded sovereignty in that sense. You still have mostly governments that enter into various international obligations, treat themselves as equals in, in, those, in those structures. Westphalian sovereignty, by the way, is not uh, an absolute norm. Uh, it is always conditioned on the way governments treat their own citizens. And you would find, I could find you, there are some quotes in the book coming from people like Jesse Helms and others that, that sort of dismissed the idea that uh, it was sovereignty that entitled Slobodan Milosevic to ethnic cleansing in, 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 in what was then Yugoslavia. And actually sovereignty arguments are often invoked by authoritarian governments to essentially justify whatever they're doing to their own population. So so there's an argument that's been, I think, in the past summarily 
rejected by, 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 by people on the political right for, for good reasons. And it's not really one that would sort of jeopardize any possibility for international cooperation and creating of, of international institutions. There is a, a one way of thinking about sovereignty, especially among U.S. conservatives, uh, which does present a challenge for international cooperation. So if you, if you understand sovereignty through the lenses of, sort of self-governance and, and U.S. constitutional order, uh, there are a number of technical challenges that arise uh, when the United States joins international treaties, organizations, delegates decision-making to, to international bodies. And you know, people like Jeremy Rapkin or, or our colleague John Yu at, at AEI have written about those, those subjects extensively. But, but these challenges are not materially different from, from the broader set of tensions that arise in U.S. constitutional law uh, with regard to the way we govern ourselves at home. Right, so, so 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 federalism as practiced today looks very different from from the way it was envisaged by the founding fathers. The executive branch has taken on much more power. Uh, Congress has abdicated on some of its responsibilities. So, so to sort of say that it is international cooperation and international institutions that pose somehow a distinct challenge to the U.S. constitutional order to me is not not very compelling. Right, that 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 this is part of a much broader story which different countries have resolved in different ways. In Germany, you just, uh, you know, you just pass a constitutional amendment uh, every time you sort of need to do something, particularly with regard to, 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 to the process of European integration. So, you know, many constitutional amendments have been adopted by, by European countries. It's, it's sort of harder in the U.S., and I think that's why, why some, of these, some of these tensions arise. But these are tensions not limited to... Uh, to international questions, but but to sort of the U.S. system of governance more broadly. Um, let me ask the question a different way. So, what are what are, what are sort of globalist approaches or policies that you would advocate that, as you understand it, a nationalist would say, "I disagree with that," mm-hmm. and vice versa? So, is, one, it ju- is it just is it just is it just trade, or is it about you know? American troops stationed overseas, like what, sure. are, so what are sort of the salient differences? So, so, so I suppose one way to, to answer that question would be to uh, actually say that, that these two understandings of sovereignty, whether it's the Westphalian one or, 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 or the one that, that arises from, from questions of U.S. constitutional law, are probably not what animates most people and, and turns them nationalists. Right. I think what people perceive sometimes at a very intuitive, if not emotional level, is a sovereignty that they understood understand as as ability to control things, right. policy outcomes, or, uh, or 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 sort of various sort of features of of, sort of economic and, and and social life. And there is, I think, this naive idea that if only we repatriated powers, we would somehow get a better control of of things, and we could perhaps return to some sort of nostalgic version of of what we imagined 1950s or or, or the past to look like. I think that's very much the the animus behind um, the Brexit movement, and I think it explains a lot uh, of the appeal that that President Trump uh, had in his his campaign. And I think that that instinct is mistaken. The sort of sense of control is simply not on the menu in a world that's that's complex and, and uh, and interconnected, and efforts to repatriate control the way the British are trying to do with Brexit might paradoxically result in less control, and 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 reduce these countries into positions of of rule takers. Uh, it's simply very difficult to sort of disentangle a country from from 
from from the globalized world by trying to withdraw from these various institutions and platforms for co for, for, for cooperation. So I think that's the big distinction that uh, that I, as a globalist, so to speak, accept that these institutions exist for a reason, and uh, and although we can sort of quibble about the details and maybe seek to exit from 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 some aspects of the system, uh, there is no going back. At least not without imposing either dramatic economic costs on on your populations, or, or or without sort of resigning on any kind of control over over policy outcomes. Right. So, what do you understand sort of the nationalist agenda is? Is it dramatically reduced immigration, much a much more protectionist trade policy? I mean, which are, which what do you understand as the key elements? Is it again bringing all the troops home? And not worrying, you know, unless unless there are, you know, enemy ships landing, uh, troop carriers landing at Virginia Beach, we're, we're not we're we're not going to care. Uh, is it is it not not caring what goes on in other countries? So if we don't care about the Uyghurs, Hong Kong, that's not our business. We're we, we're there to cut a trade deal with China, not worry about Hong Kong. So like so, what are sort of the key elements of that nationalist agenda that you? as you understand it and that you reject the question really reveals how multi-layered this this problem is because obviously for some some of the supporters if not sort of important movers and shakers in the nationalist movement it is primarily about things like migration and about sort of domestic demographics of the US or or western european countries and it's much less so about trade agreements or 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 or, or alliances uh for for others, it's about these technical questions of constitutional law and how 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 countries govern mm -hmm. govern themselves. But I think what what unites these approaches is is the rejection of the idea that countries and nation states should be able to pool sovereignty and decision making and create common structures that potentially constrain um, the discretion that 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 sort of elected officials in in these nation states possess. Um, and, and, and I think it's an idea that's actually uh, a striking departure from, from what has been the baseline of classical liberal thought for, for many years, even of uh, conservative uh, Catholic thought in, in Europe in, in the early parts of the 20th century, where the nation state uh, was perceived, I think rightly so, not as a God-given fact, but simply as a as, as a result of of these political processes of, of unification that that occurred in the 19th century, so so for example the Catholic uh, um, personalists the, the sort of social um, Catholic social thought movement of the early parts of the 20th century was very explicit in in rejecting the sort of Jacobinic nature of the nation state as as the centralizing entity and 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 people argued. And this is something I'm trying to explain to Americans. This part of the European condition has to do with trying to reconcile diversity and, and unity. That, that the European continent lived through uh, a millennium of half of, of efforts to, to secure coexistence for a great number of highly decentralized political units. And, and the answer, the best sort of answer that, that the thinkers on both the sort of conservative center-right and classical liberal center-right came up with was some some version of international federalism. And so that notion is reflected in the architecture of the EU to some extent, but it's also reflected, I think, more broadly in the institutions that the U.S. helped to set up after the Second World War. 
I'm guessing a lot of people who might call themselves nationalists are ultimately wondering what America continues to get. Again, the Soviet Union is gone. That's why there were troops in Europe. So why do we have troops in Europe? Um, what are we getting from these trade deals? I guess they don't see what, what this view, and maybe, I, you know, maybe I'm mistaking <laughs> stating your views, but they just don't see what America is getting from this situation where, they're, where they're, we're already the richest country in the world, um, and we don't seem to have any immediate threats. And again, this seems to be an architecture built for an earlier era. So how does globalism need to at least update itself for a new era? That's, that, that people see as relevant. So I think it needs updating, but, but at the same time, uh, it's pretty obvious to me that an international trading system in which countries are mostly held to high standards in terms of economic openness and non-discrimination uh, is one that also benefits U.S. exporters and U.S. companies that have been doing business overseas and, and, and that rely on very complicated value chains. Apple products are... are, are being built in the nationalists would like to bring those countries. They'd like to bring those supply chains back to the United States. I believe somebody would like they would, they would like to all these products to be made in the United States. If you listen to the president, it almost sounds as if everything should be that all American products should be manufactured in the United States. And if you want to sell to the United States, you should in other countries they should manufacture their products here as well. And I mean, I think that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how. Uh, not just international trade, but but right. just business models more broadly operate. Right. So so maybe it was the case hundred years ago that you had companies operating as boxes, right, confined to the territory of a, of, of of one state, and and they would purchase the inputs, capital and labor, and and they would produce something, you know, shoes or cars or something, and those would get then exported. But that's nothing like what what sort of corporations and, and so value chains look like these days. So you have uh, thousands and thousands of sort of intermediate products and suppliers uh, stepping in at every 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 point of the way. Uh, you have over a thousand, I think, suppliers for that, that Boeing uses when it builds its Dreamliner airplane. Uh, car manufacturers, both in the US and in Europe, constantly ship intermediate parts back and forth. Uh, and that's what has made the world so prosperous. So you know, I think a lot of nationals say that's what's made some people prosperous. It's what's it, they think ultimately it's made, made companies very profitable. What made the executive very, executives very prosperous? But well, the question whether they, but I mean, there's this question whether it's continuing to work for the United States, right? Um, I mean, I don't see why not. In the sense that, uh, uh, like, I'm, like, I'm not an expert on U.S. manufacturing, but my understanding is that the U.S. economy is in a far better shape than it was 50 years ago. Uh, I don't believe that is indeed the case of all the nationalists who, who believe that we, we were prosperous in the 1950s and 60s, and then uh, we opened ourselves more up to trade, uh, plus we started getting a lot more immigrants, and it's been downhill ever since. And that, to me, that, that, I don't know if that's the smart nationalist take, but it seems to me that is like the common nationalist take, and that we started worrying too much about the welfare of people in other countries so that we, we were going to let them come here because if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you're an immigrant, you come to the United States, immediately you're sort of better off if you're coming from a poorer country. So we worried a lot about those people, and we worried a lot about these other countries. Now we just need to worry about the United States and not care about it. I mean, is there a smarter nationalist take than that that I'm missing? I'm not sure, about, but that, that I think is contradicted by, you know, heaps of evidence about, uh, you know, U.S. real incomes, 
etc., etc., and longevity, like on any metric, the U.S. today is a far better society than 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 it was 50 years ago. I think that that nostalgia is is simply misplaced, uh, mis misplaced. But but if I mean if there is a grain of truth to that, it probably has to do with the fact that maybe there could have been domestic policies that could have worked differently in terms of social safety nets, in terms of helping people, you know, move between jobs and geographical locations. Well, well let, let me ask you. So if, if you're sort of, and this book's kind of aimed toward people on the on the center right, yep. uh, what do you want them to know that they, they might be getting wrong about nationalism and they might be getting wrong about globalism? Like what, so what, I mean, what is the core thing you want them to sort of understand going forward? Well, I, I, if, if there's just one message, it really has to do with the fact that for all the problems we've seen over the past 20 years, whether it's the Iraq war or the financial crisis or, or the migration crisis that hit Europe in 2015, or indeed um, the high numbers of, of asylum seekers coming to the United States, by and large, this system built internationally under US leadership after the war has served the United States, the West at large, and the world in general extremely well. And it used to be a central tenet of conservatism to, to think uh, with things that mostly work only very, very carefully. And that prudence, I think, has gone out of the window in recent years, that there is this almost revolutionary zeal to, to, to dismantle or destroy existing institutions without having anything remotely resembling a strategy about uh, how those should be replaced. And, and, and I would like to revive that sense of prudence in centralized circles, that there is a lot at stake. There are conflicts around the world that can come back easily, that there are things that are sort of done uh, under the flag of, you know, bringing our troops back home, for example, that have massively destabilizing repercussions. I'm, you know, talking about uh, what happened in northern Syria recently, right? Like, these are things that the next administration will have to deal with uh, that will cost may be a lot in terms of, of U.S. lives and, and, and treasure as well. Right. And I would just like to see more prudent thinking guiding many of these decisions. Well, let me ask you the last question. An America that sort of withdraws from the world, it's sort of the, um, I guess, drawbridge mm -hmm. approach. What does that world end up looking like? An America that does not want to exercise leadership, that we are just one country uh, of many. We're going to kind of take care of. We're just going to take care of our own. I'm not going to worry about this conflict over here, or you know what's happening to those people in that country. We're not going to let them migrate. What, just what does that world look like a decade yeah. or two later? I think it's it's a world that will be uh, much less attuned to U.S. interests. It will be a world uh, that will be much less friendlier to yeah whatever. <laughs> voters in the mid Midwest care about. Um, if you have uh, these sort of so sources of vacuum created in different parts of the world, you'll have ruthless powers stepping in and, 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 and filling those vo voids. And, uh, and so, I, so I firmly believe that part of responsible leadership with America right now is, is to work with America's allies and friends and, and countries with whom the United States shares values and, and broad outlooks on, on, on governance and and markets and, and help to remake the world not necessarily in our image but 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 in a way that that's that, that's aligned with American interests. And that's true of trade, that's true of uh, security questions. I mean the idea that 
you know the US can just tackle the the the, the China challenge on its own I think is a naive one. Uh, the EU is the world's largest economy, uh, over 500 million consumers, and, uh, and 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 so so even if 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 you see China as as the one major challenge that you know maybe Trump has correctly identified and and brought attention to, uh, the idea that the US can can do it alone I think is is a very naive one. Delmore, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Jim. City sky comes down like-